you're welcome. My name is Michael Mason, I'm the director of the Media Centre here at OEC. Uh, this event, Salvi Kashoji, what next for the kingdom? The running order for the event tonight is we have three speakers. I'm very delighted to have three colleagues from the Middle East Centre. I don't think we have a better panel to talk to this topic across a variety of uh, perspectives, expertise, and experience. Um, each of them will talk, say, about 10 to 15 minutes about the, uh, the Khashoggi event, the implications of that event for Saudi Arabia, uh, for the region, that's all for the Islamic community. I was just checking out here uh, online before I came to this event about what's happening in the, uh, the States today because you have to keep up with what's going on. And Donald Trump today is saying that, as far as he's concerned, the CIA assessment did not say that Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for the killing uh, of Jamal Khashoggi, um, despite the Washington Post report at the weekend. So this is a very, very dynamic situation, okay? It's, it's changing daily in terms of the uh, account of what happened after uh, Jamal Khashoggi went to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on the 2nd of October and didn't emerge. Um, I will... Oh, one thing to remind you, if you've got your phones on, please silence them, so it doesn't detract from the presentations. Um, so as you are being broadcast, you are being recorded. So remember that when you speak later, uh, in terms of uh, clarity of your question and language. Um, the, we're also on Twitter. The hashtag is Alice Salvi. Okay? So if you want to chant your arm with all the, uh, the trolls and the bots in the Twitter sphere, uh, welcome, have a go. Let me just introduce the speakers. We're going to have each speaker will talk between 10 and 15 minutes, then we're going to have questions. So I'm hoping we'll have at least 30 to 45 minutes of questions from the audience. As with any LSE uh, public event, um, the floor is completely open to ask any question that you would like, um, as long as it's relevant to the topics, of course. Um, let me just go through our evident speakers. All our speakers are affiliated members of the LSE Middle East Centre. Um, I'm sure many of you know our speakers already, but for those who don't, um, I'll start, I'll go down the road. Um, next to me, Professor Badawi Al-Rashid. She's a visiting professor at the Middle East Centre. Um, she spent a year, a couple of years ago, at the National University of Singapore at their Middle East Institute. Uh, She's a research fellow at the Open Society Foundation, well known as previously as professor, sorry, professor of Anthropology and Religion at uh, King's College. Um, she's a prized research fellow at National College Oxford, <coughs> and also at Goldsmith College, University of London, Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology. Um, you'll be familiar with her work, her academic work, no doubt, and her frequent appearances on the media. Her latest edited book, is uh, Salman's Legacy, The Deliverance of a New Era, uh, which was published uh, this year by a person. Um, next to Madawi uh, is Dr. Ian Black. Uh, Ian's a former Middle East editor, diplomatic editor, and European editor for the Guardian newspaper. He's reported uh, extensively on the uprisings and the aftermath in Syria 
Libya and Egypt, and made frequent visits to the region, including Iran, the Gulf. His latest book, uh, Enemies and Neighbours, Arabs and Jews in Palestine and Israel, 1917-2017, uh, was published last year. It's got an MA, as well as being a distinguished journalistic background, it's got an MA in History and Social Political Science from the University of Cambridge, and a PhD in Government from LFC. Next to Ian is uh, my colleague, Dr. Stephen Hertog. He's a social professor in comparative politics in the Department of Government here at LSC. Uh, joined the Government Department in 2010 as a lecturer. He was previously Kuwait professor at Sciences Po Paris and lecturer of economy at the University of Durham and postdoctoral research fellow at Princeton University. An MA from the University of Bonn, MSc from the School of Oriental African Studies and a DPhil from the University of Oxford. So amongst my colleagues, I think the world has covered all the, uh, the, some of the distinguished academic institutions there with research on the region. Okay, so the proposal there is each speaker has 10 to 15 minutes uh, to talk. I would ask that uh, you refrain from trying to ask any questions through the presentations, okay? Um, if there are any immediate questions of clarification, I will allow those questions after each speaker. But the plan is to go through the three speakers in turn. At the end of that, I will allow uh, short clarification questions for I any. At the end of that, we'll have a general discussion. Okay? So all five of you? Good. Let's see if you can do this way. So with that in mind, I'd like to welcome you all here. And first, uh, welcome Professor Madomi Oshid. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, happy to be here to share some thoughts on uh, the question posed in the title of this panel, uh, what next for Saudi Arabia or what next for the kingdom? It's a question mark. Uh, just before I start my analysis, I would just like to put to you the idea that um, there's a lot of pressure from Western media and um, NGOs that NDS, uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, will have to go or will have to be sacked. Uh, this is a very unrealistic demand or uh, uh, request. Um, NDS will not only stay, but he will also increase his authoritarian and repressive measures. And this uh, comes from reading the history of autocrats. We don't find them sort of crumbling and uh, retreating after uh, the, the first crisis, even if the crisis of such, is of such magnitude. In fact, what they have a tendency to do is increase their uh, repression because they become even more paranoid. And I think this is what we're going to have in Saudi Arabia. So it is premature to predict with accuracy what will happen in the kingdom in the aftermath of the Khashoggi murder in Istanbul. As such a crisis of this magnitude may take several years before it actually comes to a conclusion. In Saudi Arabia, it seems that the situation hasn't changed at all since the murder on the 2nd of October. And uh, MBS is still uh, embedded in the structures of power that he had created for himself. He is still in his post as Crown Prince, in addition of several, at least six or seven other posts, from being the Minister of Defense, the 
Economic Council, the head of the security services, um, and many other roles that even involve the uh, uh, social entertainment. Um, so he is currently touring the kingdom, and he has, with his father, and even uh, trying to amass support among uh, Saudis in distant areas or distant regions of the kingdom, such as in the furthest northern provinces. Um, and this all plays into the government propaganda, which tells us that he is, one of, he is the most popular crown prince and most popular personality in Saudi Arabia. Now, the international community, which I understand Ian will be talking about, is still awaiting uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, some kind of Saudi action. Um, nobody has voiced among the European governments or in the West um, a request to sack MBS or put him on trial. Um, so, um, but most European governments, including uh, Britain, um, have voiced critical um, uh, sentiments and wanted fair trials. So that, that's the rhetoric, but so far no serious measures have been taken except in, in a couple of European countries, in Germany and in France recently, when they put the, the uh, 18, 18 Saudis on a ban list to enter the Schengen European area. Uh, so um, um, we have heard from uh, Michael um, about the Trump statement, which uh, stated um, uh, openly uh, that he would continue to support Saudi Arabia. Um, and he gave three reasons. Um, Saudi Arabia is a partner against Iran. Saudi Arabia is a partner against terrorism. And, of course, there is the story of the 450 billion million, uh, billions that Mohammed um, bin Salman had promised to invest in the U.S. economy. Almost uh, 100 billion of those of this fund is going into uh, purchasing military equipment and, and uh, weapons. Um, but um, we also have the CIA report that uh, uh, referred to Mohammed bin Salman as the person who ordered the, um, the murder. Um, however, um, I think it is very clear that uh, uh, President Trump will support Mohammed bin Salman, although Congress may take a different uh, twist. And the Khashoggi murder will be played out in the internal domestic politics of the U.S. between the president and Congress and between the president and the various branches of the American administration, such as the CIA and, and many others. Um, so um, if, if this is the situation internationally, what is the situation at the regional level? Regionally, most Arab states expressed support uh, for Saudi Arabia and for the kingdom, uh, the king in particular, with the exception of the usual suspects, so for example, Qatar. So my guess is that Mohammed um, um, bin Salman is here to stay and for a long time, and if there is any chance of him being put on trial or deposed, I think uh, the West needs to threaten his defense and security apparatus that he had created since he became uh, crown prince and minister of defense. Without undermining the security and the defense capabilities of Mohammed bin Salman, nobody can depose him. Uh, so there is talk about other princes, um, Prince Ahmed and the others, 
and there is talk about um, uh, the king himself. I do not see any sign of this happening. However, we can uh, speculate on what the murder has done to Saudi Arabia so far. Um, first of all, this is uh, the Khashoggi murder is an unprecedented, uh, self-inflicted crisis, reflecting bad judgment, messy execution, and very confused management after the murder. So, um, obviously there are winners and losers in this murder. Khashoggi had paid with his life, his family, um, and, and uh, fiancé, and all those who are related to him, uh, are uh, uh, suffering, uh, and to add insult to injury, they haven't retrieved the body, they were forced to hold a, a, a funeral in absentia, uh, in various parts of uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and the world. Uh, obviously, Turkey had uh, managed to uh, uh, make a lot of gain. Its uh, press, its newspapers that many people in the West may not have heard of, are now the source of the so-called leaks. And these leaks, uh, people are impatient with the leaks, but they do serve a purpose. Uh, Turkey managed to avoid confrontation with Saudi Arabia, or direct confrontation with Saudi Arabia, but at the same time, it had managed to force the Saudis to come up with multiple stories, successive stories that did not actually hold. Uh, and therefore, it did succeed, and its press, which is unknown to the world, uh, managed to become the center of attention of everybody. Iran, obviously, is, is a great uh, winner in this case, without it uh, incurring any cost. And it, says, uh, it stays on the side watching how the story will unfold. Qatar and its media uh, proved to be more powerful than the whole of the Saudi media empire that had been created since the 1970s. And it became a counterpart to this uh, Saudi media uh, and managed to shape Arab and international public opinion. Saudi Arabia is a great loser in this, even if MBS continues and becomes uh, king in the future. So, what we forget when we talk about the murder of Khashoggi, that this is really not a problem with a person in the Saudi kingdom who happened to be the crown prince and all the other uh, posts that he occupies. There is a structural problem. There is a structural problem in the way Saudi Arabia has changed since King Salman became king in 2003. <coughs> in the past, I have studied, I have uh, researched how the Saudi political system works. And it used to work as a, 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 an absolute monarchy, but with multiple fiefdoms built in. And I published a chapter in a book in 2005 and described the multiple fiefdoms that control Saudi Arabia. These fiefdoms mitigated against the rise of someone like Mohammed bin Salman. So there was the fiefdom of the Ministry of Interior under Prince Nair, uh, the um, uh, Ministry of Defense under Prince Sultan, the National Guard, which is a military force under Prince Abdullah. All of those had disappeared, vanished, for many reasons. First one is demography. Most of the princes or senior princes who had controlled these fiefdoms had died. And in fact, King Abdullah was an exceptional king in the sense that he had two crown princes die while he was alive. And this has never happened in Saudi Arabia before. But age 
and they all aged at the same time. And when King Salman became king, there were no other brothers to take into account. He had other brothers, but they were either ill, very old, or very weak politically. Um, there's talk about Prince Ahmed, who happened to be in London when the murder had taken place, and everybody jumped on Prince Ahmed as if he can be an alternative to MDF. But this is all probably wishful thinking or an att attempt by journalists to read too much into a situation. Um, prince Ahmed had never been a prominent senior prince. He held various uh, positions, but he'd been sidelined even before King Salman became uh, king in 2015. Um, so the transformation of the Saudi political system from these multiple fiefdoms to the rule of one man allowed the rise of MBS at the expense of other princes, simply because there were no other princes to challenge him. And as he became king under the umbrella and protection of his father, he was able to sideline and even humiliate the remaining ones who may constitute a challenge for his rule, such as Muhammad bin Nayef, who was the crown prince and also deposed, uh, or, or Prince Mugrin, who was also a, a deputy and crown prince later, um, and Mithar bin Abdullah, the head of the National Guard. All of those people were taken to, uh, uh, were either deposed in a very, very humiliating way, or were detained in the Prince Carlton, as you all know. Um, so, Mohammed bin Salman and the murder of Shukji uh, are all intertwined simply because the structure of power has changed. So if it wasn't Mohammed bin Salman, it could have been another prince uh, who would have behaved in the same way, given that there is no uh, family council to restrain the prince, there is no element of consensus or rule by consensus by the multiple uh, uh, princes. So Mohammed bin Salman had nobody to care about when he uh, amassed all this power. And this shift uh, that we almost tend to gloss, thinking that it is just this 33-year-old man who is behaving erratically and very badly. Uh, it is this structure of power that has allowed Mohammed bin Salman to behave as he behaved, not only in Istanbul, but also domestically in Saudi Arabia. Um, so, the murder of Khashoggi reflects a dangerous uh, situation as they, and it, is, it represents the external manifestation of an insecure regime, troubled leadership, and anti-reforms to the extent of going as far as precipitating a global crisis and committing murder in a consulate. So, there are several ideas that come to mind when we think about Saudi Arabia after Khashoggi. First, there's the myth about the co-optation of activists, the rule by consensus that we used to hear as a, an attribute or feature of Saudi rule. Um, in fact, this myth has collapsed completely uh, with the death, with the murder of Khashoggi, and it is replaced by outright murder abroad and extent, ex, extensive detention campaigns at home. Um, in the regime, uh, in the past, the regime was able to contain dissent, but at the moment it is using sheer force. The credibility of the leadership inside the country is shaken, hence the, the tour of the king and his son around the, around the kingdom in order to 
have an opportunity for the media to report on the cheering and the festivities that accompany such uh, royal visits or tours. Uh, there is a fear of Mohammed bin Salman's deep state now, and this fear is real because as the public prosecutor in Saudi Arabia said that there are five people who have admitted uh, uh, murder and, uh, in various capacities and various roles, um, this, uh, if Mohammed bin Salman acts on the demand of the public prosecutor to execute those five people, then he, it is a no-win situation. If he is capable of having the scapegoats and, and alienate his own scapegoats, um, this would send a really bad message to the rest of the security forces. But if he doesn't act on the public prosecutor's request, um, he will get in trouble with, with the international community. So um, Saudi society, on the other hand, is totally weakened in ways that had never been experienced before. Uh, all civil society or the nascent civil society that existed had collapsed under pressure and detention. Uh, the women feminist, the feminist movement in Saudi Arabia is also shattered by the arrest of the outspoken members and more recently their torture and sexual abuse in prison according to Amnesty International. Royal pressure is non-existent. Who is going to challenge Hamid bin Salman? So basically, I just have probably one minute now to conclude um, um, what needs to be done. Um, obviously, there are uh, ways out of this dilemma. The first one, if uh, uh, interested parties are serious about uh, replacing Mohammed bin Salman with another prince, they have to, as I said earlier, incapacitate his defense and security uh, apparatus. Um, obviously, uh, the Turkish-Saudi investigation is going nowhere, uh, with the two parties trying to sort of circle around the issue. Um, they, uh, uh, as Turkey requested, a UN-led investigation may actually be able to identify the people or the person who gave orders to the death squads to go to Istanbul and commit the murder. King Salman um, obviously has no intention so far to sack his son or put him on trial. This would be unheard of in Saudi Arabia simply because it reflects badly on the king's decision. But he can shrink the powers of his son by allowing other members of the royal family entry into the decision-making process. However, these options uh, seem unrealistic, but I just put them to you to, as, uh, as, uh, to discuss. Um, I think it is likely that business will be as, uh, uh, as usual in, in, in the future, and Mohammed bin Salman will survive not because Mr. Trump has uh, supported him. We always have a tendency to think that, well, it's the US who's the central part uh, agent in all societies, in all political spheres. Of course, Mr. Trump's support helps Mohammed bin Salman in, in a materialistic way in the, uh, and also in a moralistic way. So he has the ability to, to declare that he will be joining the G20 in Argentina um, uh, when the, the G20 meeting takes place. But uh, there are, as I mentioned, there are uh, internal domestic structures of power that allow Mohammed bin Salman to remain in his post and even become more ruthless. Thank you. Thank you very much, Madalai.
allowed up, uh, up to two page briefs. Any questions about clarification? One thing about that is any events or terms or names mentioned which you might want some quick clarification on. Not substantive questions. Anybody? No? Good. Okay. Now we move over to my colleague, Simon Black. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Madawi. So, I mean, clearly, as we talk about this extraordinary story, there's going to be a, some overlap. But actually, Madawi's penultimate line was, I've already written it down, is the, it was my introductory thought about how to look at the big picture of this. It's quite a complicated story. There are lots of different elements, domestic, international, economic, which we will address. But it seems to me that the, the, the big picture of this uh, certainly in terms of international and regional reactions, which is what I'm going to focus on, there's a sort of tension, if you like, between possi possible punitive action and business as usual. And it seems to me, I agree with Madawi, that business as usual is far more likely to be the outcome of this story. I mean, I think it may take time to unfold. There's lots of different variables. But in, in, the, in the grosso modo, as it were, that I think is... Is, is, the, is the likely outcome of this. You had a very interesting, uh, almost a sort of microcosm of this quite early on. I can't remember exactly when it was, but a few days after the, the circumstances of what happened to Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul began to be clear, there was this uh, conference, the Davos in the Desert, it was called. Now, various ministers from different countries you know, very publicly cancelled their attendance at this. But lots of chief executives went. And I think that's exactly a sort of a, a, a way to understand uh, international reactions too. Um, I noticed today that Bin Salman uh, visited either Abu Dhabi or Dubai, I don't recall, but he'd gone to his nearest neighbor and closest ally because, of course, he can take for granted, whatever rumbling there is internationally and even hostility in his immediate neighborhood, with the exception of the Qataris, he is, from the beginning, he is uh, one uh, widespread uh, support and loyalty. So the, the Saudis are trying to do, uh, to indeed behave with business as usual. Some of you may have seen the interview with Adil Joubert, the Saudi foreign minister, was it last night or the night before on the BBC? And he talks unsmilingly about red lines which can't be crossed. Criticism of Mohammed bin Salman is just not acceptable. Uh, so extremely, you know, uh, fluent delivery, unsmiling, as if it were absolutely unbelievable that anybody should be criticizing the, uh, the Saudi crown prince. Um, so the international fallout continues all the time. I mean, I, I agree that Trump doesn't decide everything, but Trump nevertheless, I think we've all got used to it in recent months, is just extraordinarily disruptive in the kind of things that he says. And from the very beginning of this episode, I think one of his first comments was that, well, you know, arms sales couldn't be part of whatever happened. And he's now come out very clearly in open support of, uh, of, uh, of Bin Salman and the Saudi uh, government more generally, spectacular ally and all those things. He's contradicted the findings of the Central Intelligence Agency. I mean, it's a bit like what he does with Putin. He accepts Russian uh, uh, claims as opposed to those of his own uh, administration and experts. So the American position, of course, which is reflected 
by many other countries, including uh, uh, the UK, is that Saudi Arabia matters because of military ties, intelligence, cooperation on counter-terrorism is a particularly important one, and that it works to secure uh, regional stability, with some exceptions, of course, and in, uh, in, in the uh, global energy markets. Trump, of course, has been found out to have, uh, just in the last few days, to have wildly exaggerated the extent of, Amer of American arms sales to the Saudis and the number of American jobs that are dependent uh, on it. And he's indeed been criticized for suggesting that the, almost implied that the, the USA is a client state of Saudi Arabia rather than the other way around, which is far closer to reality. Um, so, you know, not that it particularly matters, but we've seen today Denmark, not an enormously important international player, but nevertheless symbolically announcing that it will curtail the small number of arms sales that it makes to the Saudis. The Germans, who matter more, have done the same. Uh, the French and, uh, well, also this, the British government have yet to announce any kind of punitive measures in response to the Khashoggi uh, killing. Uh, Europe, well, you know, hopefully we can get through the evening without talking about Brexit, but clearly Europe has other other things to worry about at the moment, including uh, Theresa May. The Arab world, as we said, has been completely supportive. I think it was Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, who was the first Arab leader to rush to defend uh, bin Salman when the story started to develop, and that's been a pattern that's been followed. People perhaps remember the awful moment when um, uh, Saad al-Hariri was uh, in uh, Riyadh for the Davos and the Desert Summit and Bin Salman actually joked that he would only be staying a couple of days this time, which was a, a reference, if you don't get the joke, to the fact that he was detained for a couple of weeks uh, last summer and, and forced, forced to resign, uh, which was an early example of Bin Salman's uh, unacceptable regional behaviour. So, um, I think there are three or four areas that are just worth looking at in terms of regional and international uh, impact for this. Uh, now, we of course mentioned Iran. Iran is, the timing of this is amazing. Khashoggi was killed in Istanbul on October the 2nd, on November the 4th, just as the thing really started to take off in terms of the focus on Saudi Arabia. Uh, that marked the reimposition of American sanctions on Iran after Trump walked away unilaterally from the international nuclear agreement with Iran. Uh, an American decision that was condemned by all the other part parties to, uh, to the agreement and was seen, rightly so, as a disruptive and potentially dangerous act in terms of the, what passes for stability in the Middle East. The Iranians have been just enjoying this spectacle enormously. Nothing they could have done would have caused such damage as inflicted by the Saudis themselves uh, on their image and reputation. And particularly when uh, part of what Trump talks about in particular is the role of the Saudis in confronting the Iranian menace. In fact, when King Salman spoke uh, the other day, to the Majesty Shura, I think, he, he, he repeated the need to uh, ensured that Iran uh, didn't acquire nuclear weapons. But of course, his greatest ally, Donald Trump, walked away from the agreement which was designed precisely to ensure that that didn't, uh, didn't happen. 
So the Iranians are, at a, at a delicate and difficult time for them, have benefited enormously, it seems to me, at least in media, optical, propaganda terms from what the Saudis have been at court doing. Um, and of course, you know, there, there, there are all sorts of potential ramifications from the application of American sanctions to, uh, to, to Iran. But the idea that Saudi Arabia, built by Trump and also by Israel as an important ally in the regional struggle that pits Riyadh against Tehran, that is looking uh, very, um, very dodgy indeed. The, the live regional crisis, which may be affected by this, is of course the war in Yemen. Uh, it's been going on for over three and a half years. Everybody's seen the terrible pictures of uh, human suffering, starving children, and so on, on the television. Uh, of course, the United States and Britain, France, have all been complicit to a degree in supporting the Saudis and the Emiratis in the war in Yemen. Uh, but I think that, I mean, I heard this actually from a very senior British uh, government official very soon after the Khashoggi affair uh, 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 exploded, there was an almost instinctive response, right, we can use this, we hope, in some way to apply pressure over the situation in Yemen. We've seen some changes, we've seen the Americans end, the refueling of uh, Saudi combat aircraft and so on and so forth. And we've seen increased efforts by the United Nations focusing on the humanitarian aspects of the crisis, having left aside the possibility that they can reach a political uh, solution. There's been no sign of any response from the Saudi side. It has to be said that the Saudis have, uh, they do have the backing of the United Nations resolution that supported their original intervention uh, in Yemen in, uh, in uh, whenever it was, in 2015, yeah, when bin Salman, the young, then rising bin Salman was the defense minister. So they have a locus, uh, but that doesn't mean that the war can be left uh, to be determined solely by the more powerful uh, side. Uh, so efforts are, have been galvanized to a degree by this. I think that would have happened uh, anyway. The, the, the situation around Hodeida, that's the port on the Yemeni coast, uh, has not really uh, changed at this point. Another regional crisis, of less human cost but very long-standing and disruptive, is of course the Saudi and Emirati-led blockade of Qatar, the small but enormously wealthy Gulf state whose media, as Atari rightly says, have, have made hay while the sun shines on this on this horrible story. Uh, maybe that somehow this can be leveraged, people believe, to uh, pressure the Saudis to uh, back down on this crisis, which seems increasingly, it seemed like that from quite early on, but it seems increasingly like a miscalculation, again, on the part of uh, the rising star uh, bin Salman. There's one other area which is interesting, uh, which is I suppose the right word for it is a potential Saudi role in what we used to call the Middle East peace process. That's a way of talking about the Israel-Palestine uh, uh, impasse, And that's quite interesting because it helps you understand the bigger picture of how the Americans, in particular under Trump, view the Middle East, 
the sort of de facto alliance that you've seen between uh, Trump in the Oval Office, bin Salman in Riyadh, and the very long-standing right-wing Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. And Trump has boasted, and everybody's heard of his, uh, bragging about the deal of the century that he's going to do. And that appears to have, from the beginning, envisaged an important role for Saudi Arabia. Uh, some of you will know bits of this. It's, there are leaks and rumors and uh, the odd report, but we know that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, got, got on very well with bin Salman. Whether there's a financial aspect to this is unclear, but there may well be. And bin Salman, earlier this year, in March, I think it was, spent three weeks in the United States polishing the image of himself as a young, dynamic reformer who was going to tackle the Saudi Arabia's long dependence on oil and push through social reforms and allow women to drive and talk about moderate Islam and all those things. And he sent out messages there which were really quite unusual for uh, the leader or the, the leader in waiting of a powerful Arab country. And the idea was that somehow Saudi Arabia would exert pressure on the Palestinians uh, and play their part in delivering the deal of the century. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that one of the interesting questions that I quite like to hear from both of my colleagues here about that is that there have been moments, haven't there, when the king, king, king Salman, has actually shown irritation with his own son. And I think one of those areas was over uh, the idea that Saudi Arabia would go along with the uh, move of the American embassy to Jerusalem and the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I think the king sent out messages to say, well, actually, on this issue, I'm still in charge. And there were others, maybe Aramco is another example. So the regional implications of this are like the whole story. It's still going on, we don't know. Those are the areas where I think where we may see uh, changes, we may see um, some kind of uh, effect of this, but broadly speaking, broadly speaking, at the risk of repeating myself, I think that governments are tending to more likely to go for business as usual. I think that they will require some symbolic act of investigation, judicial role, something, but the Saudis have clearly, they're not in a mood where they feel uh, officially contrite and the system, Bin Salman's position seemed to me, uh, if you look at the situation regionally, internationally, to be uh, fairly, uh, fairly well established, despite everything that we know. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. So uh, I'll try to pick up some of the pieces that have been left untouched first <coughs> on the uh, economic ramifications and then uh, developing further some of the things that Ian just mentioned about the various 
uh, international theaters in which there could be movement as a concession to Western pressure. I'll comment a bit more on where I think there's most likely to be uh, Saudi concessions you know, between Qatar, Yemen, Israel, and, and, and the oil market. Um, so uh, the Khashoggi story broke at a time when economically the outlook had actually been improving after three years of pretty difficult austerity. Uh, the outlook wasn't brilliant, so the private sector was still suffering from uh, unpaid contracts, from uh, the imposition of various new fees, energy price reforms, but at least growth was starting to be positive again. So the growth of the private sector this year is going to be around 1.1%, so at least it's not the, the contraction that we had in parts of 2016 and 2017, when uh, both uh, a lot of government spending stopped and a lot of new revenue, revenue measures were imposed at the same time. Uh, kind of fitting the private sector as a kind of double whammy. So uh, there was uh, there were first signs of economic optimism, which were mostly due to the fact that oil prices had, had crept up again to uh, the 70s and then briefly to, to the, the 80s, so uh, reaching a peak of 83, 84 dollars per barrel, which was the highest that it had been since 2014. Uh, now. The affair has broken, which has created a lot of uncertainty among Saudi elites, among international business elites, and at the same time, the oil price has actually moved down quite significantly in the last few weeks. So we're now at a Brent price in the kind of low 60s, and the cyclical indicators on the oil market are that this could last for a while, even if there's an OPEC agreement in December that takes some supply off the market. And at the same time, Trump is putting very explicit pressure on Saudi Arabia to not cut production and to help to push prices even lower. So it's been uh, absolutely explicit about this in a, in a tweet yesterday that was kind of an unprecedented piece of direct oil diplomacy from an American president of, of a kind we've never had before. Um, so uh, we've had the kind of uh, psychological and political impact of the Khashoggi story and the structural impact of the oil market. And I think in 2019 at least, uh, the impact of the oil market is probably going to be larger. And I don't think that uh, the Khashoggi story has such a huge effect on business operations for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, most of the sectors that really matter for economic development or just for you know, continuing economic activity in Saudi Arabia are relatively low-key. They're not very exposed to the international media. They don't have very high corporate social responsibility profiles. Um, so uh, the things that are less likely to happen, like high-profile tech investment in new industrial cities or very high-profile tourism investment by Richard Branson, people like that, they weren't that likely to happen in the first place. They were quite speculative. They were uh, kind of at the less likely end of the diversification program. So if they're not going to happen, you know, that, that might have been the case anyway. Um, the investment in utilities, in industry, uh, in finance, that to some extent are going to happen, and certainly just the commercial exchange, the trade relationships, in those uh, areas are probably not going to be touched. And even tech, if you talk to people in Silicon Valley, you know, startups are willing to take money from pretty much anyone. So uh, there are some very large players, uh, Apple, Google, Uber, that are so exposed through the media that they can't afford a direct large capital injection from Saudi Arabia. But that's about the only kind of relationship that has now become more difficult. You know, the, the public investment fund can continue to put a lot of money into uh, the venture capital firms, uh, the limited partnerships, they're very, very private, you know, don't tell anyone where their money's coming from, and then through that they can still circulate that even into tech, which has been kind of the most uh, exposed reputationally to uh, the Khashoggi story after, after it broke in October. 
Um, so the risk premium for the country, I think, has gone up a little bit, not dramatically. So the sovereign spreads have gone up a little bit, uh, not because there's an anticipation of, uh, I think, political uh, instability or um, any kind of major lasting international diplomatic crisis, but just as a sign of kind of unpredictability. There's been a succession of things that happened around Saudi Arabia that were unexpected, unpredictable, and potentially credit negative. And the Khashoggi was only the, the last of them, you know, other, others including uh, the conflict in Yemen, uh, the Qatar blockade, and a couple of other domestic measures like the, the crackdown on uh, domestic corruption and all the leads through the Ritz, uh, which was also not exactly credit positive, at least in the short run. Uh, so there's a bit more attention to general decision-making, unpredictability, but I don't think it's, uh, it's really a game-changer. So I think commercially uh, there's going to be a lot of business as usual and probably a slightly more cautious decision-making uh, because uh, a lot of the kind of most impulsive or, or the, the key kind of most impulsive advisors around uh, MBS have really been cut down to size. So it seems that Saudi Al-Qahtani, who's the key political advisor, was involved with Khashoggi and all kinds of other drastic political measures. He has really been taken out of the circuit at the court. It seems that uh, MBS brother Khalid bin Salman, the current ambassador in Washington DC, is going to come back and take over a major national security portfolio. And by all accounts, KBS has some influence over his brother and is uh, less impulsive, more level-headed, and more oriented towards kind of institutionalized, uh, regularized decision-making. So that could have a slight calming influence on that front. Um, and uh, in, in general, it seems that at least temporarily, a kind of a range of older advisors that are holdovers still from the King Abdullah era that are closer to King Salman have a slightly larger role now. You know, old ministers who've become ministers of state, Ibrahim al Assad, who's also in the Ritz temporarily, now is back as a minister of state, who's part of the committee to restructure the intelligence uh, services that, were, that is chaired by Mohammed bin Salman, which was set up after the Khashoggi affair broke. Musaida um, al-Aiban, who's an old minister of state and a lawyer, who's a close advisor to the king. So those kind of cautious old timers that made a bit of a return. I don't think it's going to be permanent, but temporarily they're, they're steadying uh, the ship a little bit. Um, I think what's going to have more of a powerful impact is indeed uh, the oil prices, if they continue to remain in the 60s, as I think looks more likely now for 2019. There have been a lot of fiscal reforms on the revenue side, so there's a lot of taxes and fees that didn't exist before. The bureaucracy to raise those non-oil revenues has been built up uh, fairly rapidly and fairly impressively, but at the same time the state spending has increased by an equal measure, so net for net uh, there hasn't actually been much movement on the, f on the, on the break-even oil price, on the price at which uh, the government doesn't run deficit. It's still around something like $85 per barrel for 2018. It's going to remain probably in that neighborhood in 2019. Recent plans to expand government spending in 2019 to stimulate the economy are probably going to be revised just because the money now isn't there. Uh, and for the first time since 2015, the 2019 deficit could actually be larger than the previous year, which you know, would uh, send a problematic signal to international credit markets. That would be largely a function of the oil price, but it looks right now as if there is going to be more oversupply and, and less rapid demand growth than we had before. And that will also demonstrate that a lot of the fiscal progress, so a lot of the reduction in deficits in the last three years, were not necessarily because of domestic expenditure tightening and new revenue measures, but, but largely, I mean, to, to at least 70 or 80 percent, because oil prices had just crept up between 2015, uh, 2016 uh, October 2018. 
Um, so um, that's going to constrain resources for a lot of the spending on diversification, industrialization, new infrastructure, and it's usually capital expenditures, infrastructure spending, which is the first uh, victim of austerity because most other spending nowadays is uh, public sector salaries and transfers, which are politically very sensitive. We've seen that the Crown Prince has pursued what you could really characterize as a, as a populist strategy. So it's been very aggressive piece of the old elites, uh, his own family, old business elites, old religious elites, and he's been much more careful in uh, guarding sort of the material well-being of the wider population. So the few times that uh, measures were actually rolled back uh, and there's, there's been a, a reconsideration of particular uh, fiscal uh, tightening was actually when it hit households, you know, when, when uh, there was a decision to cut public sector allowances that went down very badly, created a storm in social media, that was reversed. And it's very clear that the court relies very strongly on the popularity in the broader population rather than the older elites, who, who in, in many cases feel slighted, marginalized, and under, and under threat. And uh, you know, even Jamal Khashoggi was a card-carrying member of the Saudi elite. He was very close to uh, important parts of the ruling family for decades. Uh, he, he was a, a leader in the local media. So uh, he was very well connected among people who now are really uh, even more shocked and feel even more uncertain than they did after, after the Ritz-Carlton events. Um, so for that reason, I don't think there's a huge amount of flexibility to cut expenditure in 2019. Most recently, in the first three quarters of 2018, only 15% of total government spending went into capital expenditure and infrastructure, which is the, the one item that you can cut that is not going to directly hit households. Most of the other 85% do directly feed into household incomes, and those are politically very sensitive. I don't think the leadership can afford to cut into that uh, at a time when it is internationally beleaguered. Uh, so there's a good chance that deficits are going to uh, creep up again. There's a good chance there'll be less money for the various diversification measures, the various vision realization programs that have been devised over the last few years. None of this is going to lead to you know, an immediate fiscal crisis or economic meltdown. Uh, but it could sort of reverse the direction of fiscal reforms and that could have a, a negative signaling effect on international debt markets and, and also for other types of investors in Saudi Arabia. Um, so uh, I think in the long run there's probably not going to be a slowdown in the general decision making, also in economic issues. It just doesn't seem to be in the DNA of the new system. It just it seems to be very rapid, uh, very fast moving and to some extent impulsive. Um, there could be a sort of a reconsideration of where Saudi Arabia is going among and even passive international investors who buy things like Saudi bonds and don't get directly involved in the Saudi economy. Uh, a lot of that depends on the oil price, and right now uh, the, the cycle seems to be potentially turning for the next few years. Um, in the medium term, after five or ten years, that could create a potentially serious fiscal crisis. We don't know that because the oil price could recover again, but if it doesn't, then uh, the currency at some point will come under pressure and there will be uh, potentially very, very difficult decisions to make on whether to devalue whether to cut spending on public sector salaries, which the majority of Saudi households depend on. So it could be some uh, hard times, uh, some very tough decisions coming the way of the court. Not the next two, three years, but perhaps afterwards. Um, very few uh, quick final remarks on uh, the, the international diplomatic options that the court now faces. Uh, the US pressure is not going to go away anytime soon. Congress will push for sanctions, probably uh, uh, controls on arms exports. Um, there probably won't be direct sanctions against uh, MBS himself or you know, financial sanctions against Saudi Arabia. That seems unlikely. But there's a good chance, there are rumors around that there's more evidence potentially coming from Turkey that 
that could implicate the top leadership even more directly. If that happens, international pressure will further increase, and then the decision will be where to kind of give in potentially. So there could be some releases of, say, some of the women's rights activists, some of the kind of more liberal dissidents that have more of an international audience. Probably there won't be much movement on the Islamist the dissidents that have been that have been detained. Um, it'll be hard to quickly get much movement going on Yemen. There can be some de-escalation, some confidence-building measures, but it's an intrinsically very, very difficult to resolve conflicts. So it's even not clear what the kind of the red lines of the Houthi movement are, whether the Saudis can really negotiate with them, what to do about guarantees about the Iranian presence, uh, what to do about heavy weapons, about border security. Those are very complex mid- to long-term issues. Qatar um, is also difficult to see a climb down. Even if there was a reversal, the damage is kind of done. It's, it's not that the Qataris will start flourishing trade with the Saudis and the Emiratis again. And the UAE also seems very heavily invested in the blockade. So the Saudi is not the only player in that regard. Uh, so possibly not that much movement either. Uh, Trump is very keen on further movement on the oil market. I don't think uh, Saudi Arabia can just afford that fiscally. If it pushes oil prices to uh, into the 50s, there'll be a double-digit deficit next year. It'll look, it'll look very, very bad. So they will continue to engineer some measured cut to at least stabilize oil uh, in the 60s, uh, which leaves uh, the one thing which, that's really a wild card, which is a movement on Israel, um, because that uh, would further shore up Israeli support for Saudi Arabia, which has been very explicit. You know, Netanyahu has lobbied very explicitly on behalf of, of MBS. Um, it could help to prize some pro-Israeli Democrats in Congress off the sanctions coalition, which would be strategically quite important because Congress is where the action is. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it would be part of MBS' long-term vision for the region. You know, he uh, quite clearly wants an alliance with Israel. He thinks he needs that to stand uh, against Iran. It would serve, uh, it would be uh, in the interest of Trump, uh, of Kushner in particular. It would be domestically costly, you know, some degree, some normalization. There were kind of trial balloons where uh, op-ed writers friendly to the court two or three years ago wrote, wouldn't it be nice if we normalize, and the Jordanians have done it, the Egyptians have done it, what's so bad about it? And the, the backlash to that was, was fairly intense, so that's why uh, then you know, Salman stepped in, or was made to step in, there are different theories about how, you know, whether that was not potentially orchestrated by the Crown Prince, and said that we're not going to normalize, we're not going to accept the, uh, the embassy move to, to uh, Jerusalem at least. Um, now, now that uh, the incentive to do something, the pressure to do something is much larger, perhaps uh, the Crown Prince is willing to incur that kind of domestic cost. You know, I think it's survivable. People would be unhappy, but I don't think the sentiment about Israel is as intense as it was 10 or 20 years ago in Saudi Arabia, like in other Arab countries. So you know, it's speculative, but perhaps that's the front on which, if the pressure really ratchets up further from the American side, there could be the most movement. Uh, stop right there. I think that oil price topic that you talked about is is really important. Um, what would you think would be the main drivers of the quick dip that you've seen maybe in the last two to three weeks on oil price, and where do you see the price normalizing out over time? Okay, I'll, I'll take that as a separate question, question, answer, then we'll go to the general questions. Okay. <laughs> 
Oh, oh, right yeah. oh sorry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on the oil market, there's always so many moving parts. I think the immediate trigger in this case was that the, uh, the Americans actually issued a lot of sanctions waivers for Iranian oil exports on short notice, which no one expected after all the harsh rhetoric. And they didn't tell the Saudis either, which really riled uh, uh, people in Riyadh, which is why there's now less willingness to coordinate before the, the OPEC meeting with the Americans. Um, there's... Um, I mean, there's worries about uh, global trade conflicts, a global economic slowdown. Uh, shale has come uh, on even more strongly than predicted. Uh, and the Saudis have, have produced uh, as much as they could over the last few months, uh, producing more than the market could, could to some extent absorb. Uh, so the momentum now seems to be that you need to take at least one and a half million barrels off the market to at least stabilize prices where they are right now. It seems current prices have already priced in the expectation of a cut by, by OPEC. Uh, so if they do nothing in December, that will really, I think, send prices through, through the floor. Thank you. So the, for those of you who don't know the format, we're going to go to general questions now. I would suggest we'll try and do at least uh, three rounds of questions. We'll have three questions. They can be asked either when you ask speakers. I would ask you, when you ask a question, could you please identify yourself and keep the, the question relatively compact, please, so that we can get more questions in. So I'll take the first round of three questions. And if we have a, a microphone going around as well, so perhaps if you wait for the microphone, it's a mic first. First question here. Yeah. Wait for the microphone, yeah? Second question I've got on the back there. Thank you so much. Very interesting. Um, I, I, I think as we, uh, there are so many evidence that uh, Mohammed bin Salman is a dictator, or authoritarian, have um, has a control over everything, state institutions and, and Saudi people. Um, so it would be patronizing, from my point of view, that he was not involved in in, in the killing. So, um, so I mean, it, trying to avoid. Uh, bringing evidence that he was involved or not involved within the structured power within the Saudis or in the region or at the global level, as uh, Madawi said, I think it all media try even to avoid. The two questions that I tried to uh, find an answer from your presentation, and I haven't, are one, why the timing, why this action or that murder happened at that particular time, and in this particular case, um, does Mohammed bin Salman wanted to, did he wanted to embrace, embarrass um, uh, the Turkish government uh, uh, by somehow? Uh, did he, was he uh, in need to do a certain action to show the whole uh, region uh, or the global uh, world that he is in a, in, a, in a superpower and he can do whatever he wants and no one would take a serious uh, sanction or serious action against him. So this is the question that I want you to maybe uh, answer uh, the timing and the place. Thank you. Can you say the, who you are to the uh, audience, please? Can you say who you are? Identify yourself. Uh, Atimad from the Middle East Center. Thank you. The next, we'll take the three questions and then we'll have responses. The gentleman at the back by the wall, just wait for the phone to come to you. Yeah. Sorry, the phone, the yeah. microphone. Uh, hello, uh, Zakari Garti. Um, I, uh, I find the, the conference very interesting, your presentation, 
But honestly, I'm quite maybe sad and confused because if I have to summarize your conference in one sentence, I would say that, okay, the crime was horrible, etc. but after all, nothing will happen and life will go on. So do you think, uh, Dr. Madawi, that one day we will have the Saudi people wake, wake up and, and fight for democracy, uh, for more democracy and freedom? And the second question is about uh, the, the Turkish involvement. Do you think the Turkish services will maybe leak additional video or tape in reaction to the support of uh, or from President Trump <coughs> to, uh, to put more pressure on President Trump or in Saudi, or Saudi Arabia to condemn uh, Medvedev? Thank you. And there was against the wall. Hi, uh, thank you very much everyone. Um, I'm Beth Oppenheim, I work at the Centre for European Reform in London. So I'm interested in the international perspective, I guess, um, and in whether or not there is any hope for international actors to influence Saudi behaviour. We've talked a little bit about um, restrictions on arms exports. I think in the EU's case, an arms uh, embargo is quite unlikely, Mogherini is unlikely to put that forward while there's a risk of that being shot down by the UK and France. Do you think there's any hope for kind of more incremental measures, um, and is it possible to have an impact whilst Trump is standing so close to MBS? Thank you. Thank you very much. So I will, we'll hold the questions there, and we'll go along the panel. Anybody want to pitch into any of those questions? Thank you, Ahmed. Um, the timing and the place. Uh, I'm really not an expert on how to organize burgers <laughs> and when is the right uh, place or moment. But uh, the, uh, I think the um, Jamal Khashoggi himself had been visiting Turkey a lot. And he had good connections with the ruling party in Turkey. He was uh, planning to marry a Turkish woman. Um, I think it would have been very difficult to organize it in the uh, consulate in Washington. Uh, and also, he was in London. Uh, but he was told, uh, according to all the leaks, that uh, you need to get this document from the Turkish, uh, from the Saudi consulate in Istanbul because the marriage is going to take place in Istanbul. So, um, yeah, I mean, he, it's not something like a Saudi critic or a journalist is asked to go to the Philippines to get a document and he gets murdered there. There is a Turkish connection between Jamal Khashoggi and the ruling party in Turkey. Um, and there is a woman uh, there who actually accompanied him and released the uh, alarm bells when he didn't uh, come out of the embassy. In terms of the place, you mean why Turkey or why the consulate? But if, if uh, why Turkey is because of that, um, uh, the consulate, I think it's a, uh, it's a miscalculation. Uh, I think you know, uh, well, I haven't heard of many murders taking place in consulate. Um, of course, there are conspiracy theories, but without uh, really an independent investigation, we're never going to know the details. And um, on the day when I heard that Jamal Khashoggi was murdered, and he got into the consulate, I, I immediately thought that he would, he would not have come out, and we would never know. And these are political crimes. 
Uh, we don't know. I mean, even in Britain it happened, in Salisbury. Uh, yes, there are uh, uh, names, there are investigations, but these political crimes are very sophisticated beyond academics like us, I think. Zakaria uh, uh, is the name. Yeah, thank you for your um, uh, question. And I mean, um, um, you felt depressed. Um, I, I wasn't here to give my opinion and what I wish for. <laughs> uh, this is an academic institution. I could give my opinion when I write an op-ed. And you know exactly what I think should happen. <laughs> Uh, but here we, we are being realistic, and I think this is uh, very, very interesting that the three of us agreed, uh, simply because we have an empirical reading of the situation and also judging the current crisis with something that we had learned from history and how Western governments had uh, supported Saudi Arabia to the extent of allowing them to get away with murder in this particular moment. So that's, that is taken for granted. Uh, you know, if Western governments are going to react, they would have reacted to the death of the thousands of Yemenis by Saudi uh, uh, airstrikes, even with UN uh, resolution. They didn't react. And therefore, to think, uh, you know, wishful thinking, that they will suddenly ostracize Saudi Arabia, impose sanctions because of Jamal Khashoggi is just unrealistic we would be like you know, living in a completely uh, a world detached from reality and how these Western governments think. Now, why don't the Saudi people rise? It's because I explained that uh, Saudi people uh, are, have been uh, emasculated and neutered, basically, uh, since 2015. There was a glimpse of freedom, a glimpse of an ability to mobilize, criticize a minister, the Minister of Electricity, or the Minister of Trade, or the Minister of Labor. But um, now it is impossible to do that. Uh, and there are, according to MBS himself, uh, 1,500 people in prison uh, just in the last two years. This is a really a repressive uh, regime that the Saudis themselves have not experienced before to the same degree. And would there be Turkish leagues? I'm sure there'll be Turkish leagues for Turkish national interest, not to find out the truth about Khashoggi, I think. Uh, I think I'll leave the international actors. So the, the question, lady over there, about the European reaction, well, you know, the Germans have been the first to act, the Danes have followed them, but I mean, the problem really is Britain and France, which are major weapons exporters. I mean, I think half of Britain's military armaments exports go to Saudi Arabia. So um, I don't think that anything significant is going to happen on that front. I think that we will see moves at the European level for some kind of symbolic action. Of course, the, I think the 18 people have been banned from the, entering the Schengen area. That's, uh, that's the very least you would expect. I mean, from the beginning of this story, I mean, I've heard people uh, you know, either in government or close to government or people who are very familiar with Saudi and the Gulf states talking about it. It's not realistic to expect that the Saudi succession will change. The most sort of things they talked about, but I think Stefan mentioned the, you know, the, the review of the way the intelligence services work, but under a committee headed by Mohammed bin Salman. So 
there's an appearance of responding in some way to, to criticism, to some sort of tinkering with structures. Uh, but I think that the sort of, you know, pragmatism, realism, self-interest come together to immediately from the start recognize the limits of what outside powers are going to be able to do because there is so much self-interest involved as well. Sorry, it's just um, about the arms sales and, and how that works. Um, I mean, Trump always threatens that if the US doesn't sell uh, the arms to Saudi Arabia, then they'll go and get it from Russia and China. But this is unrealistic because the Saudi military has been modeled by the US, and you cannot buy bombs from Russia and China and stick them on airplanes bought from the US, it's, uh, even for a non-military expert. So it is the threat. And in Britain, the same thing. They always say, and now they will probably say it even more, that if we don't sell the Saudis, as the French would. But it, it's, it's this reluctance uh, uh, and the exaggeration of the importance of arms sales to the local economies of Britain and the US, France, etc. But also it's about projecting power abroad. If you are the main supplier of defense, uh, it is not simply, it's almost like a nostalgia for an empire. So see, I have a say and I, I have a foothold in that country because they depend on me for their armament. So it's about profit, yes, but it's also about Western country projecting power abroad. And we have to understand that. One point about the uh, NGOs and the uh, non-governmental sector in, in the West and how it can exert pressure. Yes, it can exert pressure. And I think there is a new strategy by NGOs, human rights organization, to name and shame companies, corporations. I think they had given up on lobbying governments in the US, Britain, France, and other places. Um, uh, what they are trying to do is to uh, target corporations, name them, and shame them. And this has actually uh, resulted in boycotting Davos by some uh, companies and as uh, Stefan said that there are certain corporations that are more sensitive to this kind of criticism as getting money from Saudi Arabia. Even universities in Britain now over the UAE are getting under pressure to actually discuss the money they get from these kind of countries. So the NGOs play an important um, uh, role and they are diversifying their strategies in how to target them. And the last thing a corporation wants is to have its shares collapse over Saudi Arabia or any <coughs> other crisis. Stefan, was anything you wanted to add? Um, yeah, just two very quick points. On, on the timing, I think it was really opportunistic because he had been in the consulate a few days before that was reported and then the, the team was quickly assembled. Um, and uh, the... Uh, Regarding what the what the EU will do or can do, I, th I think you know with regards to the Saudi geopolitical vision, the EU is pretty pretty irrelevant. I mean, the, the, the US are predominant, then Russia is important, China has some importance. Uh, I, I really don't think that uh, the EU, the EU uh, really uh, or individual European countries, with a partial exception of the UK, uh, as, as any kind of major player. And they also lack, other than arms. Uh, export restrictions with France and the UK are not going to uh, condone. They, they lack tools to do anything meaningful 
Uh, I mean, there, there's this travel ban on those guys that were also, uh, for the most part, blacklisted by the United States, but there won't be a direct sanction against the crown prince, and then they're, they're already kind of out of things that they can do. If you're uh, interested in what's happening in the sanctions world in the US nowadays, check out the Twitter feed of someone called Bob Corker, who's the chair of the Senate uh, Foreign uh, Relations Committee. He's, he's tweeting in the past couple of days about requests made by the President from the uh, uh, Senate over sort of the Global Medicine Act, which is asking for the President to reduce or respond to the uh, uh, questioning that the uh, MBS is responsible for the killing. So that's an interesting thing to look forward to look to, to follow as the, 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 the president's obliged to respond to what Congress is doing there. My first set of questions I, I prioritize will be to my left, which is not necessarily a little bias. So this one I should go over to the right, plus the lady at the back. So wait for the microphone again, just identify briefly who you are, please, and then your question. Very much. Uh, my name is Wana. Sorry. My name is Wana, and I'm an economics student at UCL. Third-year economics student at UCL. Actually, my question was uh, exactly on your point on the Magnitsky Act. That last week, exactly a week ago, 17 Saudi officials connected to the death of Khashoggi <clears throat> were um, were sanctioned. So, more specifically, this act means that they had their assets freezed and they had a ban of travel into US. On an, I think on an unlimited uh, amount of time. So my question to you was actually more concerning. So is this opening actually the spectrum for further economic sanctions? Although it may not sound very realistic now, but maybe you know, long term, two, three, five years from now. Thank you. Next question by the wall. Hi there. My name is Rushan. I actually been a student of Stephens. Uh, LSC about three years ago. <coughs> I would like to ask about the implications of the relations with Turkey and if Turkey can leverage this further to, you know, change its international relations with the Middle East and also the U.S. Because of recent, they've also had a bit of a turmoil globally. Thank you for the compact question. And the last question here at the front, please. Again, what's your microphone? Um, my name is Beda and I am uh, from Kuwait at LSE, a student at LSE. So there is an Egyptian saying that says, which means that even if you don't hit your target, hitting around would cause some disruption. So I was just thinking, so let's, let's just scenario this, say, let's say that Muhammad did not do it and this was or basically a plan or plotted to, to try to ruin his reputation. So thinking from the plotter point of perspective, um, did, the, did that person who plotted this would have really thought that this might have a much of negative impact internationally and uh, from a regional perspective? Was that like, to that extent, if, if it was like plotted against him? Thank you very much. Can we take those, those three questions for the moment? Yeah. I would like to start with those three questions. Uh, yeah, on, on other sanctions, uh, I mean, the only ones that would hurt a little bit would be arms sales restrictions. Uh, financial sanctions can only really be effectively imposed by the United States through the Treasury because of the, the dollar's role as reserve currency. 
and they're not going to do it. You know, that's really the kind of atomic bomb in the sanctions armory, and that's really reserved for rogue states like North Korea and Iran. I, I really don't see that being used against Saudi Arabia, which is a country that holds probably something like three or four hundred billion dollars in US treasury bonds. Uh, so it's, it's very, very hard to imagine them being kind of cut out of, uh, out of that uh, US finance-dominated system. Um, and the thing with the Magnitsky Act is that the guys who are targeted, they've all, they've all been taken out domestically already. You know, Sarah Kartania, Hadana Siri, they've been sacked, and the, the rest are just the goons who were part of that hit squad. So there's no kind of, uh, in, you know, in the case of Putin uh, and the use of the Magnitsky Act, they targeted confidence around him, were very close, and he got very upset about that, and that really hurt. But the, the Saudis already had to sacrifice these kinds of figures, so they're already, you know, they've already been taken out of the picture, so that there's no obvious target left. Thank you. Well, I, I guess if there's any kind of credible, independent investigation that shows what happened, then that could clarify who might be targeted. It might also answer your question, which is kind of counterfactual but fascinating, but can be speculative. But I mean, I, I really do think, I mean, from the very beginning of this terrible story, we need to know more clearly what actually happened. And we don't know. We don't know, for example, the Turks, the Turks even say, I think I'm right in saying that they, they, they didn't actually bow to the continent, or maybe they're simply lying. But I mean, how do they, how do they, how do they know what they know? And I think until we, we have a clearer picture of what actually happened, then uh, you know, reactions are going to be even slower in coming than they would otherwise be. Well, on uh, Turkey, um, I think it, it, it really managed the crisis very well. And it is used, unfortunately, for Khashoggi and his family to score some uh, goals with the U.S. But in terms, I mean, Turkey, uh, the, the, the regional rivalry is now between Saudi Arabia and Iran. We talked about it. In fact, we've had a conference here at LSC uh, uh, at the beginning of the summer on it. But we don't talk about the Saudi-Turkish uh, problem. And this problem has become even uh, more acute uh, after the crisis in Qatar, when Turkey sent troops to, to uh, Qatar. And also Turkey has become a mecca for all the exiled or self-exiled uh, Islams in the Arab world, in, in from, from Egypt to Saudi Arabia to Gulf Islamists as well. They all have centers in uh, Istanbul. Uh, they um, um, publish, uh, they're very active, they run in media, their own media. Um, and also there's the fundamental, um, I think, more uh, uh, problematic relationship between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. It's because they, uh, unlike with Iran, which is defined as a Shia state with its own relative faqih, with its own theology, that the majority of Sunni Muslims do not actually look for Iran as a model of Islamic governance, but they do look to Turkey, and they have been looking to Turkey as a model to emulate, as a model to copy. And this comes from the majority of Islamists, uh, apart from the very, very hard-line Salafis who regard Turkey as a hypocritical Muslim state. Um, not only because of its Sufi tradition, but also because of its bars and you know, nightlife, etc. So uh, Turkey represents uh, more of a challenge to Saudi Arabia than Iran. 
uh, at the level of um, uh, religion, ideology, and appeared in the Muslim world. Um, so yes. And in terms of if MBS didn't do it, if he, I think I'll just say, with, uh, repeat what uh, uh, Ian said, that we really need an independent investigation. Uh, all we have been fed is leaks. We don't know the source of the leak. Uh, you know, the embassy will but not but. So it, it's very difficult. Uh, we have to finish at 8 o'clock sharp, so I think I'll just take two more questions. Um, gentleman here wanted to ask for some time. I, at the front, yeah. Uh, thank you. I'm Jad. I'm a second year student at LSE. Uh, so it was interesting to hear about some of the regional implications uh, with the Khashoggi incident. Uh, uh, as it was mentioned, Iran is enjoying this because it was perfect timing for it and it's, uh, its reputation looks a lot better now next to Saudi Arabia. But I'm wondering if that means anything now for Iran in this age particularly. Does have any real political or economic gains from this? Okay, thank you. And lady behind you. Sorry. Unfortunately, I totally agree with your analysis on the long-term prospects for the Yemen situation. But I was wondering whether, given the estimated cost of $46 billion per month of this war for the Saudis, whether, and the points you made about the Saudi economy, whether that might not have a slight impact on the situation. And the second point I have to make is, it's totally different, which is I wonder whether the sentencing of Matt Hedges yesterday to life imprisonment in the UAE is an attempt, at least in terms of Britain, if not anywhere beyond, to distract people from looking at the Khajoji thing. I know it's a bit far-fetched, but um, you never know. Thank you. We'll hold the questions there. Five minutes. Any of our panel like to... Uh... Well, on the, on the Iranian question, I'm, and I'm, Jan, I mean, I'm not sure that it makes much difference in the, you know, in terms of the actual configuration of, of forces. Iran is facing these reimposed American sanctions think that the Iranians will probably stick to the nuclear agreement. They have a lot of support. They have supported the European Union, uh, Russia, and China. And I think that the, the, the likely effectiveness of the American sanctions is, is open to question. But it's certainly in terms of optics to have the, its own strategic rival in the region and a close ally of the United States and with these increasingly informal but important relations with Israel, that helps the Iranian case, whether it makes any difference uh, is, you know, in, in the real world is a different question. Um, but it, uh, it, is, it is enormously damaging to the, uh, to, um, the, sort of the, the Trumpian vision of the Middle East, if you like, when such a close ally has been caught doing this, even if, for reasons we've discussed already at length, it's not going to do very much about it. Um, yeah, I, th I think uh, you know, what you're well, implicitly hinting to is that, that there's no direct tangible gain for Iran. That, that, that's probably right because 
The big issue is the American sanctions that are going away. They're doing very significant damage to Iran economically. The EU are trying to circumvent them. They're, they're not succeeding because they're not in control of uh, the, the financial system that's used to squeeze Iran. Uh, and uh, I mean, the one benefit might be that Saudi Arabia is going to be less adventurous mm. in the region in the various proxy conflicts with Iran uh, because uh, it's just you know, suffered so much now and, and so busy cleaning up after, after that mess. Uh, and uh, that, that also includes Yemen, you know, where Iran has developed a state. Um, regarding uh, the, the cost of the war, it is significant, and it could be become more a more prominent factor if oil prices stay where they are right now, which is uh, $20 lower per barrel where they were uh, just, just last month. Um, I guess what, what they can do is to dial at least the conflict down, you know, freeze it, do confidence-building measures, and, and do, do fewer military operations as to try to contain it rather than try to actively conquer parts of, uh, of, of northern Yemen. Um, now, the, the Matthew Hedges story, I mean, if it was meant to as a distraction, I really don't think it, it worked because it's just so much smaller, even, I think, in the, in the British public perception than the Khashoggi story. Iran, it, uh, yes, there are no tangible benefits, but it did make Iran look and feel better <laughs> about itself. <laughs> of course, the sanctions are not there, but in terms of the psychology, uh, you know, they could claim that they don't murder journalists and consulates, I mean, they do other things. Um, um, yeah, and then the, the five-minute trial or the court appearance of uh, in the UAE, I don't think it's a distraction again. Uh, it's been going on for a while, but it's the, the magnitude of the Khashoggi one is, is just overwhelming. And it, it will not go away. I mean, the, the American press is, is, is concerned, and it will continue to push. But we really need to understand it within the context of the US and what is happening between Trump, Congress, uh, and, and uh, you know, other, other um, state agencies like the CIA. Um, and it, it may not have, it may have nothing to do with Saudi Arabia. It's their internal domestic battle that is being unfolding every day. And uh, we will see how it, it will unfold. And I think, um, uh, to just add to what Michael uh, mentioned about uh, Corker, I think they're going to ask uh, for, uh, to declassify the CIA report. And that would be interesting. An interesting development that may add something um, uh, to, to this mystery, uh, and then we are less dependent on leaks. <laughs> but we, will, we shall see. But I think also, if I can just add, I mean, I think the fact that Jamal Khashoggi was writing for the Washington Post, mm -hmm. that he wasn't writing for, for, for you know, Gulf News or Al-Asa, he was writing for one of the most influential papers in the world, in the United States, at a time when, you know, the media, as we all know, is being accused of all kinds of things by the Twitter-in-chief in the White House. So I think that mattered. I wondered about whether it was a special impact, the fact that, I don't know they all were, but many of Jamal's articles were translated into Arabic as well. So, uh, I don't know whether that... They were written in Arabic, translated into English. Well, I don't know. I didn't, but they were appeared, they were available. Yes, they were We'll take one more round of questions, um, and I'll go across the hall. Start here on the right. We can wait for the microphone, please. Say so who you are, briefly. Hello, um, my name is...
officer. I'm just a regular person. <laughs> um, first of all, um, I wanted to say thank you to all the speakers. And I wanted to The blockade uh, last year in the bus, um, it's kind of like it's a discourse of vandalism with the idea that has been unprecedented. And it kind of makes me feel like I'm in the twilight zone. Um, but I'm not just dependent on the other, but I've, you know, I'm following the whole um, book. It, it's almost like akin to that saying. But I'm, I'm curious to ask you, um, is there an argument to be made about one absolute monarchy or another better? Did my question make sense? Yeah, relative merits of absolute monarchies. They did the first and then they Thank you, Osana, graduate of What, for Magawi and Ian, what is your take about the claim that Actually, Turkey allowed Khashoggi, and in order to get political benefits, and actually, it did have enough information to be able to prevent it. And the second one, very short, for Madawi, um, you said there are two options to deal with this: either execution of the ones uh, involved or not. I think the international community is not going to calm down until some action is taken. How much do you see that an execution of uh, the ones involved like Maher Madrib and Saud al-Qahtani could provoke an uprising in Saudi of the Saudi public, possibly led by the, the, the security forces, or is the deep state, the fear from the deep state, is too strong to prevent that and, and will prevent that? Okay, last question. Who's really desperate to ask a question? Anybody? Hey, yeah, I'm Phil from the European Institute, so um, <coughs> not so much into the topic, so it might sound profound for some, but like, I still don't understand why the West, especially the United States, is so much protecting Saudi Arabia, especially when having in mind that they do not with Iran. Um, so my question is, why does especially Donald Trump take such a strong stand for one of the sides, um, for one of the big parties in the Middle East conflict, um, while he is very much opposing the Iran regime, but doing nothing against the Saudi Arabian regime and also the European Union. States like um, UK and France is, uh, are opposing sanctions. We heard a lot about economic interests, that's clear, but it has to be more than just economic interests. Is it really the case that Saudi Arabia is such a stability force in the Middle East? Um, is this still, the? can that be really the reason to protect this regime as much? Because Khashoggi was not the first. Um, first sign of human rights um, violations of Saudi Arabia. Okay, thank you very much. So we've got, is there a least worst absolute monarchy right, in the Gulf, as understood it? Did Turkey allow the killing? And why is the US protecting Saudi Arabia? It's quite a... <laughs> <laughs> Three lectures. Three lectures. Well, absolute monarchies are awful. <laughs> <laughs> But um, 
the, I don't think they could they compare them in the sense that some are better than others. I think what the critical thing is uh, to ask, even in a monarchy, whether there are institutions that can act on uh, an absolute rule. So take Kuwait, for example. Even when the uh, emir dominates a crown prince, they still have to go the motion of asking parliament. Okay? Although it's a toothless parliament, they do make some noise. But in Saudi Arabia, it is the only remaining country in the world and in its own uh, environment without the semblance of a national assembly. It has an, a, a, an appointed council, a consultative council that has no power whatsoever, and even when it makes decisions or advice, it is non-binding, so they could be ignored. So that, that situation, um, uh, plus the fact that even a, a royal family council doesn't exist anymore, or if it exists, it exists on paper, such as the Committee of Allegiance. So there are no mechanisms in Saudi Arabia to restrain a ruler, a monarch, whatsoever, uh, from within the country, and plus, as I mentioned, the death of civil society, the death of activism, adds to the problem. So if there is any pressure, it should come from abroad. But uh, to just answer your question, if you read the statement of Trump, the last statement, it's on the White House website, he gives uh, economic reasons and geostrategic reasons for absolute support. And he's not actually unique. I mean, we focus on Trump. This has been American policy since the Second World War. Uh, first, it started with oil. Then it started with the strategic um, uh, position of Saudi Arabia. They had a military base in Bahrain, which was used to uh, refuel American jets flying to the Far East. Uh, so oil came <coughs> first, then the, uh, the position of Saudi Arabia. Uh, then there's the arms sales and all that come under that. But the economy is there. We know that uh, oil is important, although the U.S. does not depend on Saudi oil, but it is important for stabilizing the oil prices. It's important for controlling other economies in the Far East, and mainly China and India, and all those kind of complicated issues. So even if the U.S. doesn't need Saudi oil, it needs to control Saudi production for other purposes. And then the geostrategic thing, we mentioned them, uh, uh, the fixation on Iran in the American thinking since 1979. They cannot get out of this, of this sort of uh, paranoia about Iran. So they accuse Iran of spreading terror, of sponsoring militia in Iraq, um, Hezbollah in Lebanon, etc. But the Saudis have done the same, and they seem to get away with it. So if you look at uh, uh, Saudi Arabia's spread of Wahhabi Islam, Saudi Arabia's sponsorship of radical groups, that's all forgotten in Western capitals. Um, so then they're not only forgotten, but Saudi Arabia is considered in Trump's statement as a partner against terrorism. So this is the logic. And there, then more recently, uh, it became very, very important for the Trump administration to say that Saudi Arabia is critical for uh, Israel and the security of Israel. Although since 1979, with two Arab countries signing peace treaties with Israel, there is no peace in Israel. Uh, and even if the whole of the Gulf region 
uh, including Saudi Arabia, normalize uh, relations with Israel, there will not be peace until Israel sits with the Palestinians and talks about it. Of course, it will open Saudi market for Israel, which has already happened uh, in terms of the exchange uh, of the transfer of technology. And in fact, the surveillance and the hacking of dissident has been done by an Israeli uh, technology produced by an Israeli company, according to um, uh, one report uh, uh, by citizens now. So yes, these are the stated reasons uh, uh, that are given in the US for focusing on Saudi Arabia as a partner and demonizing Iran. But it could switch. I mean, they could use the same argument and apply it to Iran, and Iran was a, a partner of the US until 1979. So there is this sort of, uh, um, uh, I think fixation, when you talk to um, Americans in the US um, about Iran as the, the devil incarnated, um, they, they don't have a love relationship with Saudi Arabia, but they are willing to tolerate Saudi Arabia for this reason. Thank you.